please, Sidene, deliver me. It kind of works. You know, it's just, it, it's a good, uh, actually I've done, like, I've used that as like a meditation technique sparingly over the last X amount of years since when I first read it. But it, it really is a good, like, you focus on it. It's like a flickering flame. It's enough to, like, capture your attention and then you just kind of let everything else melt away. You're going to learn to channel and we're going to yeah. watch you start to touch the taint and go mad. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be great. Oh, actually, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm, uh, I'm touching the taint right now. Oh my God, right now? We've all touched the taint, Sean. <laughs> Don't say anything if you're touching the taint. Welcome to the Bridge Burners Book Club, where we read, discuss, criticize, and get excited about all things fantasy. I'm your host, Sean, and with me is my co-host, Tyler. That's me. And our co-host, Ben. I'll never trust a Terran fairy man. We're excited to have you along with us each week as we take a journey together through the books we love. How's it going? How are you guys doing? Quite well. Doing well? Doing well. How are you, Sean? I am doing pretty well, just... Getting through training at a new job, so, you know, it's a little crazy, and my mind is uh, filled with a whole bunch of information all at once, and I'm trying to remember that, and also uh, all of uh, this stuff about the Wheel of Time. Yeah, that sounds like a great time to start a big new project in your personal life. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah, I'm excited. Well, welcome everybody to a brand new podcast. This is the first episode, and what is this podcast? We are basically what you would uh, in old school talk call a book club, except, uh, you know, over the internet, podcast style, up on YouTube, all the other places. And um, yeah, we are going to have a book. Uh, Primarily, we're going to be reading fantasy, and we will be taking a book one at a time, a couple or a few chapters each week, and we'll be breaking down those chapters with a summary and then a discussion. We will talk about them and discuss a lot of other stuff along the way, have some tangents, uh, probably say a lot of really dumb things, and uh, hopefully that is entertaining for you. And uh, we would love to have as much input from listeners as possible so hopefully as we evolve and and gain somewhat of a following uh, in the uh, ideal world that we're imagining we'll have polls up on our youtube week to week we can interact with you there and if anyone wants to write in you can email us at bridgeburnersbc at gmail.com we're coming for you adventure zone yeah yeah um i think eventually we're gonna have a bridgeburners book club uh brand airline uh, so get your oh, yeah. cards ready for that. It's going to be a fun time for everybody. I think that's stage stage three, though. That's in stage three. Big branding opportunities. This just reminded me. In this uh, Wheel of Time Amazon series launch issue, or reissue of uh, Eye, Eye of the World, they have a quote from Clint McElroy. Ooh. Jordan's writing is so amazing. The characterization, the attention to detail. Clint McElroy. Co-creator of the number one podcast, The Adventure Zone. 
do they have any relation to Wheel of Time or is that just out of nowhere? Nope. They're very famous. No, that's just an old man with some solid nerd cred. I was actually looking at the uh, the opening, the quote on the cover of my, my older copy. This is from the, like, the 90s. Um, and it's from the New York Times. And they say, Jordan has come to dominate the world that Tolkien began to reveal. Which struck me as just a fucking ridiculous quote. Like, no, this isn't, this isn't set in Middle Earth or like Upper Earth or any of those. I assume you both have uh, read through Lord of the Rings? Yes. Yeah, it has been a while, though. I read The Hobbit a bunch when I was really little, and then I read Lord of the Rings in, like, fourth grade, and I was always very proud of that for some reason. And now looking back, I'm like, it's not that hard of a read. It's just boring in some parts. It's a lot. It's more a testament to your ability to sit still for a long period of time. No, I think I was, I, I read it in, like, I think sixth grade or something, and I remember feeling pretty proud about that. I think at any age you read a series of books, you should be proud about it. Sure. Yeah, I was kind of an insufferable Lord of the Rings kid for a little while, as we all were. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like sixth grade D and D group, and everyone had a, a a friend that was the Gollum slash Smeagol of the group. I don't think people argue that Lord of the Rings isn't like the progenitor of fantasy, at least high fantasy, more or less. Like, can you guys think of anything or have you read anything that that came before that that really like fits into the genre overall? I haven't really read anything, but I did see a good Reddit thread about like early, like pre-Tolkien or like contemporary to Tolkien fantasy that has been overlooked. And I was surprised by how much there was. Yeah, I guess there's like Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that. That's older. Which I don't actually, I don't know if is that older. Well, yeah, that's like pulp stuff from the 30s. I think that's where a lot of, he was kind of taking a lot of themes from like 30s pulp stuff, but then applying, you know, his own deep scholarly knowledge of, you know, Germanic shit and Anglo-Saxon shit. The ring cycle and all of that. And that's where he got a lot of the dwarves and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of it comes from Germanic and Anglo-Saxon stuff that he was really into. You've read more of The Wheel of Time than me, but do you guys consider Robert Jordan to be sort of in the uh, in the vein of Tolkien? Because I, I think I definitely could see some resemblance there, at least in like kind of how it's it's high fantasy and it's it's the farthest thing from what we now call grimdark that there is to me, <laughs> where it's like sort of hopeful and exemplifies good and evil in pretty black and white terms and that sort of thing. To any of the modern or you know, last 30 years, fantasy authors, I would say it's probably the most Tolkien-esque and exactly that, the black and white, the good versus the evil, the chosen one. I mean, I don't know if you'd really call like Frodo or Bilbo chosen ones. They're just kind of like victims of circumstance. But, um, you know, the, the epic semi-linear quest where Jordan differs is that he he doesn't develop like the cultures and languages as much as Tolkien or really no one does, um, you know, creating your own language. But he does get into the political bureaucracies of the different civilizations. I mean, it really is as if you took the Lord of the Rings and blew it up over 13 books. I mean, there's that much more dwelling in circumstance and political scenarios and cultures and uh, the mire of bureaucracy. So he kind of out-Tolkien's Tolkien in in some ways. Jordan is describing a world that is like supernatural, but it's a lot more human or like kind of feels like if medieval Europe had magic versus what Tolkien has done, which is like kind of create this very rich mythologized world with lots of other types of people in it. 
But then, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird to compare, even compare the two. And there are things like Trollocs and there's the Dark One and all that. And I think that's where people kind of like, oh, okay, so it's like Tolkien. But it is kind of a fundamentally different story. And I think you could even say, I like had never really put it together. It's like you kind of took Tolkien's, of somebody writing with kind of Tolkien's view of the world but in a more Conan the Barbarian type world where it is just like this city state is doing this thing and this these people are over there doing that thing and there's kind of crude culturization kind of happening. It's it's interesting to kind of compare those two because it's a little bit of a mismatch of both, kind of like the high fantasy of Tolkien meets, you know, kind of a more real world, what, what you know, Hyperborea or whatever it is in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, Hyboria. There's not like a pantheon, like cause there in Tolkien you have like the different stratospheres of gods and demigods and the Maiar, and there's worlds that exist. That's why it's Middle Earth, you know, worlds that exist above that world and and you know different. Uh, yeah, it's just different uh, stratifications of deities and almost godly creatures that descend upon Middle Middle Earth in uh wheel of time it's just we're pretty just human this is the world it's just been blown up like 10 or a million times and we're just rebuilding and doing it all again yeah there's really one godlike creature and that's shaitan the dark one and the dragon i guess yeah speaking of which I, let's not get into it now but i will have some questions as we go along about maybe some disambiguation about that because i get a little confused sometimes about like how many entities there really are and if they're just talking about the same person you know when they're using different names and depends you know if like a folk person is talking in some more colloquial ways or something like that as opposed to getting the prologue where you're seeing the actual characters back in the day should we jump into the prologue then we discussed the prologue cover i think we should i think we should all right so let's get into the chapter summary of the eye of the world prologue we open to the quietly rumbling palace of luz theron telamon the dragon in the aftermath of a great destruction fire and lightning have left their marks through the halls and corridors bodies of men women and children litter the floors Luz Theron deftly navigates his way across the wreckage of his home, seemingly oblivious to it, calling out to his wife Ilyana as if she is playfully hiding from him. A man dressed in black appears in a ripple of air behind Luz Theron, evidently fully aware of the macabre scene. The man in black introduces himself as Elan Marin Tadroni, or the Betrayer of Hope. Elan Marin attempts to return Luz Theron to lucidity with mocking words, hoping to make clear the full breadth of his defeat. Painfully imbued with dark magic by Elan Marin, Luz Theron comes to his senses and finds that he has been standing over his wife's body, having murdered his entire family and everyone he had ever loved. He has offered the return of Ilyana's life in exchange for serving the great lord of the dark, Shaitan. In his despair and desperation, Luz Theron reaches out to the true source and travels to the banks of a river. Finding himself alone, but unable to escape the painful memories, he draws on the true source without reserve, far past what he can safely channel on his own. The air turns to fire and a bolt of light flashes down from the sky, making the earth itself churn like a stormy sea. Molten rock boils and jets into the sky as a mountain rises up, pushing the river aside and forming an island. There stands Alon Marin. He swears that this is not over and that it will not be done until the end of time. When he is gone, only the mountain and the island stand, waiting. 
Elena. Okay, so here's my here's kind of my like what I was thinking. You kind of have like three different things here. You've got like uh, Luce Theron in his palace, right? And he is like obviously mad. But what kind of struck me was like he's clearly killed his family. Uh, which is a, a hell of a trope to start a story on. But like in his madness now, he seems totally unaware of it. There's kind of this interesting ambiguity when you think about it between did he kill his family when he was mad? But no, he's mad now and he thinks his family is alive. Like what? what is the actual situation of him killing his family? There's this kind of like, long interlude where they just like talk they say they just say a lot of like there's this big lore dump and you're left with like shaitan the wheel inside din and the creator and all this stuff is just kind of like dumped on you but i think this like the final image of like like calling down this power that you don't really understand yet and then busting open a mountain in the world that's a, that's a, I mean, it's a short prologue that throws a lot at you, uh, but you're left with this kind of cool image in it at the, at the end that I really like. Did you guys just overall enjoy the prologue as like a opening to an epic fantasy series? Do you feel like it promised you something you wanted more of? Yeah, I, I don't think it's like crazy well written. I mean, maybe it is like maybe he does mean it like a, a Greek tragedy or a Shakespearean play where he's like, Ileana, where are you? Like kind of. You know, a single set piece speaking to the crowd and we are, you know, we're the audience, which I never really had that thought until today, like the way that it's set up and the, the dialogue works. But yeah, I think it's good. And and I didn't really, I can't remember if this crossed my mind 15 years ago when I read this book for the first time, but when Ellen Moran lays hands on Luce Theron, he's saying this is the Dark One's form of healing. I never really thought about it, but it seems like at that point that um, he removes the taint from Sadine, and it sounds it seems like he restores sanity to Lewis Theron so he can understand what he's done. So he really does heal him briefly, but which leads him further into a different type of madness, and then of course concludes in the breaking of the world. So. It's an interesting kind of like they lift the veil, restore his mental clarity, which casts him just further into anguish. Um, and he kills himself and basically the world and the dark one has to cycle again to try to steal him or whatever his aims are. There was this line like right after he gets his sanity restored where the betrayer is talking to him and he says, Ten years, you fool, this war has lasted, not lasted ten years, but since the beginning of time. You and I have thought a thousand battles within the turning of the wheel, a thousand times a thousand, and we will fight till time dies and the shadow is triumphant. Which is like a crazy thing for a person to say, like to have that kind of memory of past lives. I remember kind of being struck by all this guy as a teenager reading this because I think I was like, 17 i think when i picked up this book for the first time and then they throw a whole but there's a hundred companions are tearing the world apart <laughs> without spoiling down the line do you guys does this make you think that the dark one remembers his past lives i don't even remember exactly how it works is the dark one a human that i don't really know no but like this betrayer guy seems like they at least all remember this last one but then there he's saying like i remember 10,000 lives that's it seems like most of his book is con most of this is kind of concerned with what's happened to the last cycle and what's happening now but then they say that there's 10,000 more i don't know well i got some notes let's start hitting some stuff 
uh, in, yeah, in the first paragraph, he's talking about how the paintings and the uh, tapestries on the walls all hang undisturbed, except where bulging walls have pushed them away. The uh, finely carved furnishings inlaid with ivory and gold stood untouched, except where rippling floors had toppled them. Is that deliberate, do you guys think? It says the mind twisting had struck at the core, ignoring peripheral things, like signifying that the energy, the magic was so focused on being drawn to loose there and that that it didn't even touch anything because it was so focused i don't know but um that line didn't really make that much sense to me but i did like the line uh and i'm paraphrasing where it's like the tapestries were trying to run from the walls bulging everything which seemed to have attempted to walk before the madness grew quiet just in general, the I think like where Jordan's strengths are and are like describing scenes. Like when people start to talk and actions between human beings are done, I think it's a little bit weaker. But when he's just describing a cool scene, it's cool. Yeah. A lot of that stuff in the like first paragraph is, I think, just there to sort of get you in a mood to probably not trying to make you like examine it that closely. Another question I had right at the beginning here. So it says, uh, like three paragraphs in here, it says, uh, For a moment he fingered the symbol on his cloak, a circle half white and half black, the colors separated by a sinuous line. I think that symbol, in the, at least in the show, it was just a yin-yang. <laughs> like, because it shows a flashback with Luce there and... I think that's what it's supposed to be. I remember as a reading this passage as a 16 year old being like, that's a yin yang. You just described a yin yang. Yeah. That's the second coolest pog to get <laughs> after Cherry Bomb, of course. Sold a joke right out of my mouth. That's interesting, though, to me, just in the sense that we're going to be talking a lot about how this series references uh, and draws on a lot of elements of religions and mythology and spiritual movements and things like that. So I think that obviously there's a lot of themes of black and white, good and evil, light and dark in this series. And that's probably just with the wheel. Everything's got the two sides or uh, circular nature to it. Yeah, it's very Abrahamic. Yeah. The one thing I was struck by is like they didn't they talks about the creator and the wheel and stuff, but like what you really get is like badness, right? There's a lot of talk about Shaitan and this bad guy, and like he's clearly one, and people are tearing themselves apart of the world. It feels like kind of uh, whatever the word is, deistic, I think, where it's God is out there, but evil is present in the world. Yeah. God's not like a actor on the planet, but the dragon is the representative God, aka Jesus. Uh, speaking of Jesus. Well, and just one other thing, like the Lord of the Morning. That's what I was going to say. So like the Morning Star was Satan mm -hmm. in the Bible. And so it was kind of interesting. And it could be a completely unintentional. It doesn't matter. He pulls in a lot of words and concepts from other religions, but like the things he's deepest on, like it's clearly he comes from like a Judeo kind of Christian background and is pulling on that for some of this. The Lord of the Morning is referring to the dragon. Not the the bad guy. Uh, yeah. So Lucifer, meaning like the bearer of light and like the morning star that's in the Bible. It's pretty interesting to study like how that then became the concept of Satan, which came out of the Hebrew Bible. Shaitan is more like something, a creature under God who like accuses people and like kind of works for God. And to see that in here and this, it's very much the medieval concept of Satan, which is the antithesis of God.
And even like, so shaitan, the actual word with the H in it, that comes from Islam, which is like the concept of a spirit of evil in the world, which maybe is more like this, but is less of a personified thing. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a scholar in it. It differs in different versions of the Bible, but I did make a note because I Googled a little bit when I read Lord of the Morning and I was like, I know that's from the Bible and refers to Satan, but it's like, at least from what I could gather primarily, it's saying that Lucifer was the son of the morning because when he was an angel, he shined so bright. I did want to point out we're probably going to be talking a lot when we try and talk about important things that are being hinted or discussed. You can definitely tell because he capitalizes a lot of things. So like, have you the voice? The voice is a specific thing within this world. Yeah, and it'll soon be time for the singing, capital S, which, which if you had those are both lowercase, you would just read over that and be like, oh, yeah, voice. Do you have a good voice? And can you sing? Uh, that seems like a, a normal thing to ask somebody. I can't remember, and I don't think this is spoiling it. This is like an anti-spoiler, but I don't think that's relevant for the rest of the series. The singing or the voice? Yeah, I could be wrong, though. This is a person that haven't finished the series in 10 years. Sounds like a credit to the Benny Gesserit from uh, Dune. Don't look it up, and that way, if it ever comes up again, we can be like, oh, it's here. Yeah, no spoilers. Yeah. I also just like, on the next page, you once wore the Ring of Tamerlane. Maybe as a thing, and I don't remember, but it's just funny, because that's clearly Tamerlane from Celtic mythology, who is the head bard of the, the druids. So, like, I think you just like, ah, I just had to come up with some shit for this paragraph here. Cool. Ring of Tamerlane. Cool. And I'll put a Y instead of an AI, so it sounds more fantasy. There's a spot here where Elon Morin says, once you stood first among the servants, servants is capital S there. So I guess the servants are a uh, group of people we'll be meeting down the line. Just noting that. What the hell is that? Also, it mentions the ring of Tamerlan. We're just getting rapid fire things here. That's like, what is this stuff? It's in the high seat. You defeated me at the gates of Peron Desen. Yeah, just a lot of proper nouns. Once you summoned the nine rods of dominion, like, okay. Sure. I summoned the nine rods of dominion last night, if you know what I mean. 27 crowns of the ass man dick shitters. The ass man dick shitters. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then a little bit below that mentions the sisters. You know, I assume that there was a group, whether they were called the Aes Sedai or not, that were also the sisters back in the day. I assume that's what he's referring to. What's interesting, too, is like, yes, there's Sedin and Sadar. That's always existed. But every time an era comes and goes, all of history and culture and everything is reset. And so they're basically starting over. And so all the terminology is like, I like that he doesn't just say, there's another proper noun here. We got the hundred companions being mentioned. It says they're tearing the world apart and every day a hundred more men join them. So obviously they're not a hundred. Now they've got to be at least 200 companions, right? If it's been two days, then three days, uh, 300 companions. I mean, if they're tearing the world apart, though, there's going to be some losses. So like what percent are we looking at here? And then the percentage would grow. Yeah, yeah. Further down from that, the first then actual mention of Sadine. Desperately, he reached out to the true Taurus to tainted. First use of the word taint. And he traveled. That's also telling you that travel with a capital T means something. Can we have a taint button? Taint. Taint. He was still touching Sadin, the male half of the power that drove the universe that turned the wheel of time. And he could feel the oily taint fouling its surface. 
the taint of the shadow's counterstroke, the taint that doomed the world. Feel my oily taint. Feel my oily taint. That doomed the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he draws upon the source, says, light, forgive me. Iliana! And then the air turns to fire, the fire to light liquefied. I underlined that. It's a good one. Imagine that in the musical, that light, forgive me, Iliana line. It'll be so good. I also put a note here on, um, because in his pride, he had believed that men could match the creator, could mend what the creator had made, and they had broken. In his pride, he had believed. I kind of highlighted that because it sounds like Luz Theron tried to break the cycle and then did something to the male half of magic. And then the problem came in when he was counterbalanced by darkness, which is sort of the yin-yang thing going on there, where no matter what you do on the light, the dark counterbalances. And I feel like, you know, how does light ever overcome dark if it's just always completely counterbalanced do you even want those things to come out of balance is there a problem with that too i'll be interested to see overall if that's examined uh, as the books go on but even the yin yang is that's even what it kind of symbolizes is the balance between light and dark yeah there's definitely some hubris in that line right some greek tragedy type things going on because in his pride he believed that men could match the creator it's a, a tweet i write run like recently rest in peace to everyone killed by the gods for their hubris but yeah, i'm different i'm better better maybe even than the gods I did have a couple more little notes here. Part where it describes that the mountain rises into the sky, gushes out lava everywhere, and then this straight river gets pushed into a curve away from the mountain, and there it splits to form a long island in its midst. And getting a little ahead here, but especially having watched the show, that just sounds like Tarvalon to me. Uh, yeah, have you looked at a map? Yeah, there's a map on the net. There's a map on the next literal next page of the book, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's what it is. But I think that's also pretty like as an author, that's a neat way to get people just to stop and look at the map for a second. Yeah, that's cool. Especially if you're one of those people that likes to do that. I feel like some people just look at it and they're like, I can't even begin to comprehend this, and they just don't even engage with it. No, I, I fucking love a good fantasy map. One of my favorite onion. One of my favorite Onion headlines is almost 40-year-old man turns back to the beginning of the book to consult the map. That's a good moment. It's like, man, that's me. And yes, I have no shame about that. I'm always consulting the map. Some books, it helps me to imagine it. And sometimes I just like to go with the flow. This is one of the most map-heavy books. This is a real map-heavy one. A map is better than a glossary because you don't discover the glossary until you get to the end of the book anyway. You're like, shit, I just read all of Dune without realizing there's all this shit back here. I remember one takeaway I had of that section. It's like, oh no, the dragons killed all of us. Oh, that motherfucker. Boy, I really miss the dragon. But the prophecy, like, oh man, remember that dragon? He was awesome. What a neat fella. We'll get into it, but I was noticing all the, you know, the folky people in this first few chapters reminded me that everyone's got a different opinion on what the dragon did and if they were good or bad and et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you don't even speak their name. Yeah, we got these two quotes here um, from, I have no idea if we're ever going to know who these people are, uh, from Aleth Nin Taran Alta Kamora, The Breaking of the World, author unknown, The Fourth Age. In the next chapter, it's going to start by saying that it's happening in the Third Age. So this is actually speaking about the book we're about to read from the future. Oh, I never, I didn't put that together. Holy shit. Wow. Well, I mean, it, it's, it tells it all right there. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel, but it was 
a beginning. I just need to say that's one of my like best tropey ways to intro a book is to be like, I'm going to start a book, but by the way, just so you know, no story has a beginning anywhere. I, I just like that. Or quibbling about like how long back a story begins. I think it's Good Omens that starts with like a whole page about how long ago the beginning of the world was. An author just needs to get into it and kind of like stretch their knuckles at first. And sometimes you need to just like talk for two pages about how stories don't begin anywhere. Uh, that's fine. And he doesn't in a paragraph. It could sound like it's describing what we just read in the intro or in the prologue, but we're reading this about whoever the dragon is in the coming book. They destroyed the entire world and he brought the shadow and the breaking of the world and they named him Dragon. That's just telling us that it's going to end the same way. You know what, Sean? I have I had not at all put that together until like right fucking now that that those two quotes are both from the fourth age about the third age and we're going to the third age is is what we're talking about right now well shit pretty epic and that lends credence to the architect uh persona of robert jordan yeah definitely yeah i, I don't i don't know how this series ends but let's uh yeah <laughs> but he may have just like been like oh man this is gonna be fucking badass people are gonna blow their fucking minds <laughs> and then he may not follow through to it it's easier to write that then it's execute. It's, that's probably also true. He also says, let the prince of the morning sing to the land that green things will grow and the valleys give forth lambs. Let the arm of the lord of the dawn shelter us from the dark and the great sword of justice defend us. That's kind of like Satan imagery, but also sounds like it's talking about the dragon defending everybody. And that's the light, supposedly. So it's kind of interesting. It'll be it'll be fun to maybe go back and like look at the very beginning of the series sometime later on and just to see how like it matches up with what we've read and maybe see if we can pinpoint how maybe Robert Jordan decided things differently later on or kept it the exact same as he promised us at the very beginning. And with that, I think it's about time we move on past the prologue to chapter one of The Wheel of Time, An Empty Road. On a windy day early in spring in the land known as the Two Rivers, Rand Althora and his father Tam make their way down from the hills towards the town of Emmonsfield. Following a harder winter than anyone can remember, in a year where wolves come out of the mountains to prey on sheep and shepherds alike, the locals are on edge. A sense of quiet and uneasiness sets an eerie mood for the pair as they cart the always-promised brandy and cider for the yearly Beltine Festival. Rand spots someone on horseback, cloaked all in black behind them on the road, feeling a deep sense of hatred directed towards him emanating from the stranger. Rand stumbles for a brief moment, and when he looks back, neither he nor his father see anyone. The rider leaves no trace of having ever been there. The pair arrive at Emmonsfield and make their way through the town, sharing the latest news of hardships besetting the countryside in recent times. Rand is surprised by his friend, Matt Cowthon, while unloading the cart at the inn, who attempts to distract Rand from his responsibilities. The two share very similar stories of having recently seen the black-clothed rider near the village. Tam notices the boys talking and wrangles Matt into giving Rand a hand with the cart. I found that I was enjoying it more than I thought I would. I, I remember how this starts is uh, it's pretty tropey, very classic fantasy stuff going on. Get a lot of name drops of local places and they're like, they're kind of funny and how generic they sort of are. We got the two rivers, the mountains of mist, the sand hills. 
the Westwood. It's always funny to, for somebody to be called the Westwood. Like, what do the people on the other side of the wood call it? It's all very funny because you look at this map a couple pages before, and it's a very full landscape with people on either sides of the wood. So the, the people on the other side don't call it the Westwood. They probably call it the Eastwood. Well, the world revolves around two rivers, didn't you know? Two Rivers is apparently having a whole lot of troubles. I wrote down all the troubles that the Two Rivers is having that I could find. Wolves are raiding the sheep pens. We've got bears coming after sheep and men. The wolves are clawing their ways into barns. Uh, the bears are, this is what I like, the bears are going after sheep and as often men, which is like kind of a crazy thing to drop because like sheep first and then, oh, by the way, they're killing an equal number of humans. That seems wild. Um, it's not safe after dark. Yeah, not just during dark. During the day sometimes. During the day as well. The escalation of threat there is, is great. Um, we got stillborn lambs. We got brown fields. We got ravens. People are shaking their heads. The children aren't singing. It's a terrible time in two rivers. Yeah, I know. Ravens? Yeah, like bears are killing people and also there's fucking ravens. Uh, yeah, which, I don't know, having lived in Portland, man, we've got, I just, I drove through a, a flock of crows to, that was quite wild today. A uh, murder of crows? A murder, sorry, yes. There's a solid, I, I witnessed a murder today. What's the guy's name? One of the first guys that comes up, starts talking to him and he's got, uh, he's got all the things to complain about. He's part of the town council. Uh, Sen Bowie. It makes me think, talking about the sheep and the wolves and the humans and all that, that maybe Ken Bowie's right. Like, it is pretty fucked up. How are these people even going to survive? It sounds pretty dark. They're having a late-ass spring coming on. Things aren't blooming when they normally would, that sort of thing. These people are going to be just destitute by next winter. I was reading, like... Most the reason like most revolutions and like independence movements happens in June and July is because if the of a bad winter has happened, you're running out of food then and you're not going to actually get food until October. Uh, yeah. So that's that's when people start starving is actually like later in the year. Yeah. If an agricultural community, if the crops are coming up out of the ground now, that means in about six months, everyone's going to die. Meanwhile, and then you got Matt running around losing his badger and his uh, dog doused in a flower um so that's also got to be here in the community matt matt who is a a pseudonym for just general tomfoolery yeah matt matt foolery we're reading this book in third person close meaning we're in third person and we get the omniscience of knowing through the third person what that character that you're following is thinking um it's sort of told from their perspective but not actually in their head but it'll be like describing other characters and you're getting the description of what rand for example thinks of those characters it's not necessarily a completely omniscient view of things you know well i mean that was actually kind of thinking the same thing like it's it's an um, it's a narrator narrating it, but it's really focused on Rand's thoughts. So it's like, how much of this? Because I was kind of like faulting stuff. I'm like, this kind of seems immature the way he's kind of portraying this town. But it's also like, hey, this is the the way I don't know how. What did I as an 18 year old know about my city or my town? And yeah, I was mostly just thinking about girls, and that's kind of what he's doing. We're getting Rand's perspective, and you get introduced to Matt, like you're saying. And Rand is very uh, judgmental. I feel like of Matt. Hopefully, we're supposed to get some empathy for Matt developed as we go on. But like at the beginning here, you're just getting, yeah, Matt's like still doing these kind of things with the pranks with the badger and the flower and scaring the little girls and all that. Okay, yeah, but like 
what is there to really do in this town anyways? And like Matt is just in a shit situation that he probably wants to get out of it anyways. And he's coping in the best ways he can. But Rand is, is just thinking like, yeah, you should probably like grow up a little bit, bro. But he's like, what are they like 16, 17, something like that? Yeah, I think 17. Uh, no, I was actually reading there. It's supposed to be 19. And then Eggwin's two years younger. And Nynaeve is a couple of years older. Very early on here, I definitely know my fantasy tropes, and it says, describe a grand here, and it says, gray eyes and the reddish tinge to his hair came from his mother, so Tam said. She had been an outlander, and Rand remembered little of her aside from a smiling face, though he did put flowers on her grave every year, Beltine and the A. Gray eyes and the reddish tinge to his hair came from his mother, Tam said. When you start talking about a character's parentage like that, you're like, okay. Yeah. There's something going on here. Who's really his dad? Who's really his mom? It's Anakin. I had underlined right before it said, yeah, uh, he was a head taller than his father and had little of Tam in him physically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. This is literally the first description. We know. Okay. Yeah. Tam's not your dad. Uh, Or we can guess. And then immediately following that up with the other spooky trope, which is a rider on horseback, but with a cloak. So you can't see them. And so they're scary. And the cloak doesn't move even in the wind. I noted that too, yeah. Matt confirms, yeah, the cloak doesn't move. It's That's that's not just, I kind of was wondering at first, like, is that all really happening? Or is that just Rand in his head being a scared kid who sees something strange and is like, oh, the cloak wasn't moving. But no, that seems to be real. This dark one or whatever he is, is, um, is not affected by the wind, uh, apparently. Or his clothing isn't. One thing I noted kind of after that scene, Tam, like, bringing up sooner in the book than I can even remember this idea of the flame and the void, this kind of mental control control that you can do by feeding your passions into a flame when i was hiking last weekend it was a pretty tough back uh, over a couple of days did a lot a lot of up and downs and when we were just doing like a seven mile downhill stretch just constantly steep downhill i summoned the, the flame in the void <laughs> oh hell yeah and <laughs> it's like please sidine deliver me it kind of works, you know, it's just, it, it's a good, uh, actually I've done, like, I've used that as like a meditation technique sparingly over the last X amount of years since when I first read it, but it, it really is a good, like, you focus on it, it's like a flickering flame, it's enough to, like, capture your attention, and then you just kind of let everything else melt away, it, it's a good. You're going to learn to channel, and we're going to yeah. watch you start to touch the taint and go mad, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be great. Oh, actually, uh. I hate to say it, but I'm uh, I'm touching the taint right now. Oh, oh my God! Right now, we've all touched the taint, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say anything if you're touching the taint. Um, okay. The first rule of taint touching is. Don't talk about tape touching. Speaking of whether Rand was actually seeing the clothes not moving and all that, and he says also that he feels the hatred coming from this being and stuff. Is that real or is that Rand projecting onto what he sees and something he's scared of? I kind of assume in this book so far, it really feels like it's probably saying he actually feels the hate emanating from this thing. But what do you guys think? Matt says he like doesn't necessarily feel the hate. Robert Jordan does a really good job when they're in Emmons Field of projecting their naivete, sheltered and young and childlike, which goes away quickly. But I mean, at this point, it's still... Rand at this point definitely has like a kind of a, a weenie feel to him. Yeah. Yeah. 
They all do. Yeah, although he's described as a big tall boy. He's a big tall boy, but he gets so scared of that guy on the horse. He gets scared. He's got a little crushed, but he doesn't want to talk to her because it makes him feel so weird. He's so afraid of a girl who's two years younger, which, I mean, as a 19-year-old guy hitting on a 17-year-old girl and you're scared of her, there's some weird stuff going on there. Speaking of the uh, the flame in the void, talking about Tam, it says that nobody else in Emmonsfield talked that way. I feel like that's another hint. Tam and or Rand is from elsewhere. Where he's from, I honestly cannot remember if he's from Emmonsfield or not, but he's definitely got a perspective that the rest of Two Rivers folk do not have. They all seem to really respect. It's either him or the innkeeper. What's his name? Uh, Bran. Alvir. Oh, yeah. And also the women of the town really want to get Tam matched up. Oh, my God. Yeah. First thing you hear about it, all the women of the town that are married like to come up to Tam and he's trying to avoid them all because they're all, you know, I, I have this sister whose uh, husband died a season back and, uh, you know, I noticed you have a farm up there and it's real nice and it would be really cool if you want like a woman around who could cook and clean and that kind of thing, you know? Oh, you're just too skinny. You're just eating so poorly. Oh, As they roll into town here, uh, we get a sentence where it says that the youngsters who are around were playing tag and rolling hoops. I had to look up what rolling hoops was. And it was also called hoop trundling, which is a real game played apparently all around the world. I don't know if it spread around or a bunch of people just came up with the same game. Just stick in a circle and push it with another stick. I think that's pretty universal. Yeah, there's just like a, a wheel, a, a wheel of probably copper. Oh, or time. <laughs> and you take that and you have like a wooden stick or something to that effect. You either try to keep it rolling as long as you can, you know, guiding along with the stick or maybe pass it around or come up with little games with it like that. Apparently that was what they did for fun way back in like ancient Greece, uh, ancient Rome, in East Asia, British Empire. It goes way back. Even us Americans. And apparently we called it chunky. We call it chunky. With an E-Y. Oh, okay, yeah. Maybe we can have a Bridge Burners book club game. Oh, man. What a great payoff to that whole that whole story. And we called it chunky. The Bridge Burners book club chunky festival. Exactly. As a father, I can say, you are desperate of things to wear out your children. So, yeah, just like, hey, you want to go run two miles and push this hoop with a stick? Like, yeah, please, yes. Get them out of the house for two hours. That sounds great. Take a hold of China. You're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Just, just keep going. Just keep on digging, son. Go play some chunky with your friends, kid. Now they just play Minecraft and actually dig a hole to shine up. I did note the uh, first time that it mentions men versus women here where it talks about the wisdom being women's business. Tam says that. We start to see how the wisdom is, you know, a thing that involves magic or channeling and also healing in general. But that's dividing the society of the town. There's the wisdom and there's the women's circle and then there's the town council which seems to just be men it seems like that sort of evolution of how these societal constructs of how people in different areas divide power also has to do with the history of magic and that seems to be baked into it overall from what i can tell yeah right before that they were they're talking about what the traditions are around the beltine festival and it's just like the men do this and the 
married women put up the pole, but the unmarried women with unbraided hair wrap around the pole and everything is just, it seems like it's very tied into gender and marriage and all that, which I'm pretty on point maybe for pre-modern society. But it's also like it all reinforces into the gendered magic of the world and men can't do this, but women can. And I think it creates a different kind of power dynamic, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to closely track how that plays out in like different areas that we visit and see how the different cultures handle that. And maybe if we're able to trace how that lines up with what people are able to do magically, etc. Also, um, just make a note. Everyone fucking hates Terran Fairy. Fuck Terran Fairy. And ridiculous. Like, God, you're as dumb as a Terran Fairy man. And then a Terry Fairy man's going to come and cut your throat. And you're like, oh, well, that's, that takes it a little bit far, man. Yeah. You guys have to go there sometimes, right? It's a fairy. So I'm assuming it's... Well, they don't go there. I mean, none of Matt, Perrin, or... Rand or Egwene have been to Terran Ferry. They've probably gone 20 miles in their life. I would guess that in a sense, a lot of these farm communities are linked economy-wise as far as being able to get all of the different goods that they need and being grown around the area. I'm sure they do some treating and stuff. I think it sort of mentions that, but maybe the kids don't see that as much, but I feel like they're probably all a lot more interconnected than they pretend. That's the only thing they know, so they're just like, well... Wouldn't want to be like a Terran fairy man. Right after this is where they describe the wine spring. It just doesn't seem plausible that a stream this strong enough to knock a man down and sweet enough to justify its name a dozen times over. Cool. That stream of water then splits out into dozens of streams, which means at least 25. That just doesn't make any sense. Like, how could that much water be coming out of that small of a stream? It's like you turn a fire hose on and then it suddenly splits out into dozens of springs. I just don't get it. And then it's also running a mill. You know how much water it takes to run a mill to, like, turn a millstone around? That thing is squirting hard. That's a hell of a spring. I don't think of springs as something that pushes that much water pressure, but apparently... I've seen some pretty decent-sized rivers that come out of springs, but I haven't seen them turn a water wheel. But not like a single source immediately then becoming a giant river. It just seems kind of crazy. It's magic. And then, yeah, then then that's when they get into talking about Beltine, and then they talk about the Wine Spring Inn. The first floor of the inn was river rock, though the foundation was of older stones. As it goes on, they're going to kind of hint more and more that there's an older history to the two rivers than to kind of what even the people there know. This inn that clearly being the innkeeper also means you're the mayor. Maybe that's not true. It certainly seems like, oh, you own the only large business in town, so basically you're the king now. Yeah, I did wonder how that works, but they don't really necessarily describe exactly, at least in these chapters, how how that goes. But there has to be something related to that. It seems like the town council, at least, is made up of every man who owns a large business plus Tam because Tam seems cool. The most eligible bachelor. There is a mention here, Rand and Matt are talking about having seen the writer. Matt says, I don't know, but I do know that writer was evil. Don't laugh, I'll take an oath on it. Maybe it was the dragon. They see the dragon as evil, or at least Matt does here. And I wonder if that's because they know about men going mad. Yeah, it's just like local superstition that is against the dragon, but they don't seem to be a fan. Yeah, and what I was going to, like, right before that, Matt's talking, he says something about the Dark One, and it says, Rand took a deep breath, as much to remind himself as for any other reason he said by rote. The Dark One and all the Forsaken are bound by Sheol Ghul and the Beyond the Great Light, bound by the Creator at the moment of creation, bound until the end of time. The hand of the Creator shelters the world and the light shines on us all. Amen. 
that's like a catechism, right? That's like that's like something that somebody says because they've been taught about religion. Nowhere in this town or anywhere else is there a religion that people are practicing in their day-to-day lives, but yet people all know all this shit about the dragon. They know about the dark one. How can Rand say this by rote? Who taught him that, right? Yeah, I did wonder that, but there's only so many tales they can tell around the fire at the inn at night or whatever, so... Every 20 years when they get a, a gleeman that comes through, they, they tell them a tale about the Dark One and the dragon. We also get a mention right after that of Ishmael and Agenor, or Agenor, however you say that. I did a little Googling around. Obviously, uh, Ishmael's biblical, and there's some story about that. Abraham's second wife, his old-ass wife Sarah had no kids, and the Abrahamic covenant had to be fulfilled. Sarah was like, oh, you know, have another wife. Take my maid. Just have her. She's mine, so you can have her. And she gets no choice in it or something. And then he fathers Ishmael with her. And then later, Sarah's like, oh, I'm like 90 years old, but I'm going to have Isaac. So that didn't even matter. Maybe my womb's a poppin'. I don't know why God set it up that way. That was kind of weird, but fine. Ishmael was promised to be the father of 12 princes or tribal leaders in Egypt. He fathered a whole line, and I don't know if that's going to be relevant to who Ishmael is, but... Was it the start of Islam? Ishmael is like the father of the tribe that then, I forget what the name of it is, but I believe leads to Muhammad. And then I was reading about Shah Ishmael I, who then is the reason why Iran is Shia instead of Sunni. He was the founder of the Safavid order, which is like a religious order that then kind of became a dynasty where like the leaders of this order then call themselves Shah. And that's why it was like Iran is Shah, has like Shahs instead of sultans. But he basically said that he was the god. He was the 12th imam. We also get a mention of uh, Agenor, Agenor, however you say that. I guess it's spelled with an E-N-O-R instead of an I-N-O-R in the uh, in the Iliad. But there is a character named Agenor in the Iliad that was a Trojan hero, and he was killed by Achilles' son, Neoptolemus, during the Trojan horse ruse. So I didn't really look much into it besides that, because I felt like maybe it was just a name that was a reference. I didn't really see much important symbolism there. But maybe, you know, something will happen with Agenor about being killed by someone's son in a battle or something. That's the only thing I could find that really made sense. Cool. I couldn't actually figure out where this is from, but this looks like it. Yeah. I think he just looked in the Iliad and picked out a name there. Yeah. But it was, you know, those are names that clearly are going to mean something down the line. Talking about the Forsaken and that sounds scary and evil. So clearly it's going to come back. Ken Bowie and Tam and Bran are all talking and Rand is kind of listening in and Ken is like, say what you will. I'll say it's a foolish waste of money and those fireworks you all insisted on sending off for. They're talking about the Gleeman and paying for these fireworks and stuff. I wonder here how much Robert Jordan did in studying maybe medieval village life or uh, like agrarian societies and that sort of thing. And I wonder how much he studied as far as like how close villagers would stay to where they were born and like this concept of people coming in uh, every year or every so often they have to send off for them or the peddler comes every year and they're all waiting for it and they are just they need these specific goods that they can't get locally and touches on how economies worked back then in in these isolated places and without the travel that we have now and mass communication. I wonder, seeing this small town life, how accurate this is and if he did much studying there. 
I feel like that's probably pretty true, but I feel like what they're understating is how much people in the village would go to somewhere close by and sell their shit and kind of do their thing that way. It seems like they're trying to say that this village is totally, almost totally self-contained and that every once in a while somebody comes in from the outside. Yeah, they don't do external trading. They just wait for traders to come in. They're so hilariously isolated, even though they're not really that isolated. They're not all sustenance farming, you know, they're not only surviving on what they're able to grow. Like clearly there's some kind of economy and sharing and trading that's going on here. It's confusing how there's an inn if only two people visit the village a year. It's the bar, I guess, too. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess that's really more what it is. That's more of a tavern. There's a spot where Brand's saying about Rand that he'll follow you on the village council one day, Tam. And I'm like, is it like a life appointment? <laughs> yeah. And I was also like kind of just like trying to star where it's all the points where Rand is special. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely one of them. Like, your dad's a subsistence farmer who makes brandy. But I think what why Rand is special is I think it's a nurture special. Like, he's got a good dad. He's been taught a good work ethic, and he's not like a a Jesus special. Yeah, he's 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 tall. So there's just some nature to it. I mean, yeah, I am special because I'm tall. So yeah, no, I get that. But one one of the, like the the um, chosen one tropes is like this kid is good at everything, and he's a natural born killer at age one, and those kind of things. And Rand's not that. He's obviously physically gifted, and but he's not like charismatic, or he's not really a leader or anything like that. He's he's pretty normal, even though his physical attributes are a little out of the norm. So it's a good origin story for someone that could be the chosen one. I do get the feeling that he's a little, maybe it doesn't quite explicitly put this, but in the subtext is that he's maybe a little uh, overconfident and full of himself, not like completely ego-driven or anything like that, but like he is capable and he does have uh, some good parenting, it seems like, and been brought up right, as they would say. But at the same time, he's still just a kid from a small town that was raised as a farmer. And he's sort of looking around at people like, especially Matt, like, oh, yeah, I'm responsible and I take care of things, but these other people yeah robert jordan does a really good job of like portraying the naive naivete naiveness whatever the right word is the naivete of the uh Evansfield folks unless you guys have anything else i feel like that was a pretty good intro uh to the series i mean it, like we talked about a bit it's got some things that feel pretty tropey and very like standard fantasy stuff but i feel like to me a lot of that kind of writing, it really just depends on how good the prose is and how good the pacing is and that sort of thing. And whether or not you're able to, with the writing in general, elevate those simple ideas to be more than they would be otherwise. And that's what sort of separates this from pulp fiction fantasy stuff to me. Yeah, no, I think I was really pleased overall by the prologue is a lot of good, cool, strong images in the prologue. And then when you get into Rand's story, it's a pretty good view into a young kid in a small town which is kind of the best place to start a fantasy he kind of breaks out and gives you these really strong descriptions of a scene or a place or a thing that kind of like really ground you in the moment i'm enjoying it so far 
Yeah, it's like a elite generic opening of a fantasy series. It's been done, and it's not too out of the norm, but he does it very well. But also at the same time, like, is it generic just because that's been copied since then, since 1990, 33 years ago? Or was it already a trope at that point? That, that I'm not sure. There are a few pre-1990 fantasy series, but really, like, I'd say fantasy tropes really have been uh, compounded since then with the epic fantasy series that have come out. We're living in a world where Lord of the Rings was Academy Award winning and culturally pervasive. And I feel like having that widespread pop phenomenon of a fantasy done really well. And it sort of cemented a lot of those tropes that we're talking about into the, the cultural consciousness. And so at this point, it's kind of hard to separate that out. You've seen the best version of this and you're just reading something that's not as good as that. Well, with that, I think it's about time to wrap things up for the inaugural episode of the Bridgeburners Book Club. We were able to make it through the prologue and chapter one today, but in the future, we plan on doing four chapters per episode. We just wanted to kind of feel things out for the first one, and we'll be a little more concise and focused in the future. So expect that in the coming weeks. We would love it if you follow us on Instagram at Bridgeburners Book Club, on Twitter at BridgeburnersBC, and if you go to YouTube, find us at Bridge Burners Book Club. We will be posting episodes there as well as polls, which I, I believe I'll probably also add on Instagram and Twitter, and we'll aggregate them all and give you the results in the next episode. If you'd like to send us an email, you can find us at bridgeburnersbc at gmail.com. We'd love it if you write in with any comments, questions, and hopefully in the future we'll be reading those out on air. We'll be coming to you with a new episode every Tuesday morning, so keep an eye out for that in your feeds. I'm the Sean Chan, and for my co-hosts, Ben Bowie and Tyler, the creator, thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.